Let's be honest, it's easier to discuss DevOps and Agile than it is to implement them. There are a number of culture, tool, and cost challenges associated with those methodologies. And part of that friction applies to the collaboration between developers and testers, who need to strike a balance between swift software delivery and thorough quality checks. It's a critical component of DevOps, particularly for organizations that want to implement continuous testing. So you need to involve all team members in the process. After all, testing should not be an isolated stage in the software development lifecycle. Testing might shift left or shift right, but ideally, it never really ends. I'm David Carty, Site Editor of Search Software Quality. And I'm Ryan Black, Assistant Site Editor of Search Software Quality. And this is the Test and Release Podcast, where we speak with experts about software development and testing topics. In this episode, we spoke with Jeff Payne. He's the CEO of Coveros a consulting, agile development, and software assurance company. Caveros is also the parent company of TechWell, which provides a community for developers and testers to learn and connect, including through technology conferences such as Star West, which takes place in Anaheim at the end of September. With us, Jeff discussed what roles and specialists are involved in the act of testing, and how to mentor team members through a big shift in philosophy. We also discussed the utility of technologies like AI in testing, and how to approach acceptance criteria from a security point of view. To start off, uh, Jeff, I wanted to ask you about uh, continuous testing and kind of some of the things you saw as necessary for the practice. Uh, so maybe just as a first question, could you talk about maybe the different testing roles, like how they should come together to enforce continuous testing? Yeah, sure. So continuous testing is definitely a hot area right now. We hear a lot about it when we're out and about speaking with customers and, and all. Um, obviously, you've got a variety of roles if you're going to make continuous testing work. You know, I know there's a lot of definitions out there, so maybe I should start with my definition, uh, which is you know that continuous testing is really the practice of testing across the entire life cycle. The goal there is to you know place testing and do testing at the right time in the right place where you're going to you know, uncover any defects or unexpected behaviors quickly and um, resolve them, obviously, but most importantly, help the business make good decisions. So I think there's a lot of roles in that definition. You've obviously got your, you know, traditional software testers. They might be manual. They might be automated. We can talk about manual versus automated. Um, They're obviously playing a critical role in continuous testing, but so are your developers we really do expect and want developers to um, be involved in the testing process at at least the unit test level. Um, and then you've got the business, which, you know, if, if you are doing any, any kind of what, you know, we often call shift right, you know, in continuous testing, you know, trying to test with your customers um, on real data, you know, then obviously the business and the, and the, you know, along with the customer is going to be involved in that. So you got a lot of roles wrapped up in there, particularly if you have dedicated automation specialists as well in your organization that might be helping out. Is there any sort of a personnel in particular that you view as especially necessary? Well, you got to have testers, right? <laughs> I'm biased, <laughs> but, you know, professional testers is a critical component. You know, it's kind of funny. A couple of years ago, you heard a lot of rumblings about how, you know, with the changes and DevOps coming down the pipeline and, and, you know, testing moving more towards something that would be done in sprints that, you know, gee, do we really even need dedicated testers? Maybe we could live without them. And I actually know quite a few 
large organizations um, who certainly didn't ask us first, but uh, you know, went ahead and decided they were going to basically lay off or fire or reallocate all their, their QA and testing personnel and have um, you know, the software developers be in charge of all testing. And you know, here we are a couple years later, and they're all backing away from that really fast because that is not going to work <laughs> for a variety of reasons we could talk about. So, you know, the, the testing role continues to be and will be critical in this process. It, it's funny you say that because I actually have a friend who's a, a software engineer here in town, and uh, he mentioned to me that, like, uh, over the past year, they reduced the size of their QA team to two people. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. See um, how that works for him. <laughs> uh, from what he said, it hasn't worked well. No, it but, won't. It's not going to work. Um, but you mentioned uh, shift right testing before, and actually that's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, what are your uh, expectations when it comes to you know widespread adoption of shift left and shift right testing? Uh, do you expect mm -hmm. one to be more widely and kind of quickly embraced than the other? Ooh, that's a great question. You know, it's kind of funny because you, we've been talking about shifting left for so long Right. I mean, you know, I remember decades ago when I got involved in testing, we were always trying to figure out how do we get testing earlier in the process and how do we get dev and test working together and all of that is really trying to shift left. And then out of nowhere, this concept popped up of actually shifting some testing, right? Which when I first heard of that, I was like, well, that's not good. You know, <laughs> we're trying to shift left. But then when you understand what is meant by, you know, shifting right, you know, for instance, that there are some kinds of testing that you really can't get good results unless your customer is involved, your end customer is involved. And the nice thing about DevOps as it's structured and some of the metrics around trying to, you know, reduce cycle time when, when things are failing in production, they actually encourage you and provide a mechanism for you to shift right and do some types of testing like usability and A-B tests and, and other things we could talk about. Because if, if you find problems, you can, with DevOps, rapidly fix those problems and get them into production. I think that was probably the most difficult thing with the shift right idea in the in before, which was we, we knew that when things got to production, it was very you know, costly and time intensive to fix them. Now, if you've got DevOps in place, that might not necessarily be the case. Um, I would say that, you know, it's kind of funny. It's, shifting left has always been a challenge. I don't know that that's going to change, even with DevOps. I would think that shifting right is probably going to take hold a lot, lot quicker and easier than shifting left. Yeah, and both of those ideas are really designed, Jeff, to kind of remove this idea of testing as a fixed stage, right? It's something mm -hmm. like we talk about in DevOps. It's got to happen throughout the life cycle and kind of uh, flip that traditional thinking on its head, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I define continuous testing. I've given a couple talks on it as having four key components. One is testing continuously, duh, it's in mm -hmm. the name, right? But <laughs> but that means testing everything continuously, right? Every Not just your code, but your requirements, right your your system your production system your infrastructure you know everything in that whole process then shifting left to try to find you know kind of defects earlier in the process that got introduced by the development process shifting right 
to get more feedback and information from your customers on the product. And then, you know, sharing all of that with the business through metrics and dashboards and reports so you can make business decisions around, you know, what you're finding out about the quality of your software. Um, that's kind of how I look at continuous testing and pieces. Right. And you talked about the challenge of shift left testing. Um, there's a lot that goes into that. How can an organization better invest their developers in the idea of testing software and scanning their code, um, you know, particularly as things like cloud and serverless abstract more and more away from ops and, and just make it more challenging to perform those tasks? It's partially a cultural challenge and a tools challenge, right? Yes, definitely both. I'd say more cultural than tools. Sure. You know, one of the things I've learned being in our business, you know, helping organizations kind of adopt agile DevOps, better testing practices, et cetera, is it usually comes down to culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can solve the tool problem. Most organizations can solve the tool problem, you know, if they get their heads on straight, but culturally it is, it's a struggle to get people to change. And, you know, that's the big challenge that we see in shifting last is for many, for a long time, most organizations did not ask or expect software developers to be involved at all in testing. And um, we all know that's not a good idea, but that's just reality. And now we're asking them to be involved and, and that, can, uh, that can be a big change, change for them. It also though is, is a management change because if you're gonna ask software developers to test at some level, Inherently, that means they're going to produce less um, code. And right. so your, your productivity from a new feature perspective, equality out of the equation, is going to go down. And management has to be um, okay with that, right? And I think that's the big struggle is management wants um, – they want quality, but sometimes they don't want to reduce necessarily – you know, code productivity for that quality. And they don't understand that you can't have it both ways. Um, I actually had a question based on something you brought up. You mentioned, of course, you just like it's it's tough to bring about change in organizations, especially in a cultural sense. But I was curious about if in your experience, like if there's any particular methods, like, you know, just that work pretty effectively imparting these like kind of like cultural transitions, like, or even just like training Team members on new technologies like like what's the best way to spread knowledge throughout an organization because i i can't imagine most people respond well to a a change in culture that feels like forcibly imposed on them no you're you're exactly right um if it's forced upon them it, that makes it more difficult but yet if if you don't push change it's probably not going to happen at all so you've got to kind of balance the two together you know i do think training can help it's not going to solve your cultural problems, but just education in general, big fan of education, uh, can help. But it also needs to be um, hands-on, I would say. You know, one of the things we really push is, you know, it's one thing to sit in a classroom, we've all done it, right, and listen to somebody talk about something. It's another thing to go try to apply what you just heard. And so, you know, a lot of what we try to do uh, it's more what I would call mentoring and coaching than just straight up training. So introduce ideas and concepts, but then work with people to use those concepts because most, you know, technical people learn best by doing and they learn even better if they're doing it with people 
who have done it before. So almost an apprenticeship model, if you will, uh, can work very well to get people to learn new concepts and actually see the, the value and benefit in those concepts. And then you have to educate um, management leadership because a lot of times, you know, culturally, one of the biggest challenges is, like I mentioned, sort of about, you know, expecting developers to be as productive while testing is management has some very um, kind of, you know, misinformed uh, understandings of some of these things that you've got to set straight or they're going to continue to expect what's not possible and get frustrated when, you know, they see this change. Um, also having some you know, impacts, maybe some productivity in the short term or, or whatever that they don't expect or don't understand. And they might knee jerk reaction, you know, say, oh, this isn't working and move away from it when you just haven't gotten the organization through the knot hole yet. Going back to what you were talking about before, Jeff, uh, you know, how developers instilling that idea of quality code into what they're doing. Uh, is there any way an organization can sort of spend its way out of that challenge a little bit? Can they, you know, turn to some more full-featured IDEs that might have some more handy features that make programming easier? Or can they turn to, you know, low-code tools that might be positioned a little bit more toward um, developers? I mean, certainly that market seems to be going a little bit in that direction. Um, you know, what sorts of ways can they make that programming burden easier on developers, especially as we hear so much about developer burnout on a regular basis? Yeah, well, it's funny you should say that, starting with the developer burnout. I mean, this developer burnout, it's real simple. Our industry does is not sustainable as we work in most organizations. Mm -hmm. you know. And, and even those that have embraced Agile seem to just kind of forget the sustainability principle of Agile, right? And you know, I'm a big believer that either you're following the principles of Agile or you're not. It's not something you can pick and choose the ones that you want to follow. Because in my experience, if you don't follow them all, they, they kind of, they're kind of like pieces of a puzzle. You have to have them all for the puzzle to, to make sense. And sustainability is one of those things that our industry still, still struggles with. You can invest in some tools that make your, you know, make your developers and your testers' lives more, um, more efficient and more productive. There, there are definitely tools out there that can help you do that, you know, better IDEs. A lot of the you know, IDEs or even just, you know, um, you know, other tools that we have on our desktops now um, do integrate better testing concepts and CI, continuous integration concepts, and, and are almost doing, uh, you know, kind of what we'll call grammar checking or spell checking for security issues and quality issues. So you're seeing them kind of right in the environment you're working. I think those can help, definitely help developers you know, they say a good spell checker uh, teaches you how to spell better. I do believe that. And so, you know, providing those kinds of capabilities for quality and security right in the code, I think, can help uh, over time teach developers how to write better code. I wanted to come back to the question of developer burnout for a second, because uh, one of the other things we were talking about, of course, is kind of just like a when and how software professionals are asked to essentially like perform more functions and stuff and it's like there's almost like a competing notion of like like any professional should be expected to like do any sort of task at any moment but then there's also people who are you know still a fan of the dedicated specialist thing but 
of course, there you know people on the other side will say it's oh it's antithetical to the point of agile or Scrum for there to be a dedicated specialist. So I'm wondering like how how would how would you go about like uh, striking that balance? Yeah. So uh, I just actually uh, was at a conference. I was keynoting a, a, and talking about this exact issue, and it it is a an interesting thing. You know, agile. I'm in one sense. You know, you'll you'll hear people say, you know, everybody on the team should be able to do everybody else's job. Man, I wish I could find those people, you know? <laughs> um, if, if I could staff with all those people, I'd get a lot done. I guarantee you that. But the reality is most people aren't renaissance technologists, right? I mean, they can't do it all and do it all well. And so we're not, you know, that while that might be a great pie-in-the-sky idea, the reality is it doesn't scale and it doesn't work for large organizations. And so that model to me, I, I get the idea behind it, but I don't think it's practical. I do though think that in Agile and DevOps in particular, to be productive as a team, we have to teach people how to step a little bit out of their comfort zone and be able to at least help others. You know, some people call that being a generalized specialist where, you know, a T-shape, right? Where you have a specialty, but you know enough about the areas around you that you can help when you don't necessarily have something to do today that is critical, but one or two of your teammates have something that if it doesn't get done, unfortunately, it's going to become a bottleneck to the team. And you've got to be able to pick some of that up and help. And, and the more, of course, you can do that, you know, the better the team functions. And I do think, you know, a lot of people put the tester in the, in the uh, specialty role. I, I don't actually agree with that. I, I actually wrote a paper um, about a year ago, you know, called Dev Test Pairing. And it was talking about how developers and testers can help each other every day and, and learn from each other as they go so they can be more helpful to each other over time. I really think that kind of a model um, can, you know, get people out of straight specialty roles, uh, but never expect them to, you know, be able to do every role on the team. So you you see it as more like uh, the organization should pursue like this T-shaped specialist. I believe that's what you call it, as opposed to like a dedicated specialist. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And some people have called them E's and F's and whatever. You know, now you're getting a little crazy. <laughs> you know, now you're <laughs> expecting them to, you know, whatever. But yeah, I, I do think we, we need we need that because you know, in a sprint, when you're talking about a very short amount of time, just using Scrum as an example, you know, you know, if you're doing a waterfall and it's a 12 month project and you're blocked for a week, eh, you know, it hurts the schedule a bit. If you're in a sprint and you're blocked for a week, the sprint's cooked. It's not going to get done. If you're blocked for a day, it might not get done. And so, you know, the organizations have to realize in that model, you have to figure out a way to keep everyone productive. And that means that people are going to have to be able to step out of their roles on occasion to help others because they won't always have something right this minute to do. You know, a lot of times when we, when we go into an organization that hasn't fully embraced Agile, you know, what you'll see is that the developers and testers are still kind of in silos and the testers will complain because, you know, invariably they get to the last day of the sprint 
and then developers deliver code for the first time and then take off for the weekend and they expect the testers to hang around and uh, you know now test right and the testers have been sitting around doing some planning and some other things but you know for for the sprint haven't been um, able to be fully productive testing yet that's just not gonna work right you've got to figure out a way to get testers engaged from day one and being productive and 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 you know getting them to figure out how to work together and leverage each other is is the way you, you have to do that Jeff, we're seeing AI infused into testing more and more as time goes on, which is a scary idea for some testers. Uh, but some smaller tool vendors are even basing their entire business model on AI-based testing. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm curious where you see um, where you see AI in testing. Where are we at with that, and uh, what do you think is in store for the future there? Well, a couple of years ago, I was pretty skeptical about it when I first heard about it. Not that I don't believe that AI can help. And, you know, ironically, you probably heard of the AI effect. It's kind of funny. You know, AI has been helping and, and AI has been used practically for decades now. It's just that, ironically, whenever artificial intelligence becomes practical, we don't consider it AI anymore, right? <laughs> it's kind of because, in, you know, fundamentally, AI is looked at as something that you're, you know, in the future it's something you haven't yet figured out how to achieve it's always right? stuff, they the call stuff it, of sci-fi right <laughs> exactly yeah so you know optical character recognition speech recognition fuzzy logic you know using you know artificial neural nets for various things those things are all at this point pretty proven technologies that work and they're embedded into our daily lives whether we realize it or not to the point where none of that's considered AI anymore, right? It's, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just how we work. Okay. So I was kind of skeptical only because AI has this kind of, you mentioned it, sci-fi view, right? Where, you know, it's going to come in and solve all of our problems and, you know, or, or cause all of our problems and put us all out of business or whatever. And that was kind of, unfortunately, how I felt like the test tool and the developer tools, um, product companies were approaching it. When you saw demos and whatnot, they were talking about, you know, how you know their software was going to let you, you know, basically you just pointed at an application, and it would just figure out how to do your job for you. Um, and that was scary for testers, right? Because they they thought, well, gosh, that means they won't need me anymore. Um, good news is people have been talking about that for you know, 50 years and it hasn't happened yet. It's not going to happen anytime soon. I just hear, heard um, an AI specialist talk and his projection was it was at least another 50 years before um, a machine could think enough to even identify a new novel solution to something without being prodded to look at it just cognitively to say, oh, that's an interesting thing I should pursue. You know, that says we're a long way away. But the good news is in the last couple of years, at least from a testing perspective, I think the software uh, testing product community has gotten a lot more focused on solving particular problems, which do show promise, right? Whether it's you know, helping to create better tests or it's um, helping to automate the test execution, you know, process, or it's 
you know, fixing or correcting automated tests that have broken, either by the code or by the infrastructure, automatically, self-healing, if you will. And those are all interesting ideas that can at least um, make our testers more productive, which I think is a good track to follow for AI. How do we make our jobs more productive? And, and there is some promising ideas out there and thoughts and some of the demos I've seen you know, look very, you know, much more interesting and much more useful than they did a couple of years ago. Um, I did want to pivot to something, Jeff, something I know you've got a background in and that you've continued to write about, and it's uh, security. So, yeah. and I know this might sound like a basic question, but I still think it might be useful to lay out for our listeners. Uh, how would you write the acceptance criteria for a security-oriented software requirement? Oh, yeah, boy, that's a fun one. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, first, it depends on whether it's a functional or non-functional security requirement, right? I mean, the way we do security stories, if you will, or integrate security into stories is, you know, obviously, there are particular stories that have security components. You know, oftentimes, we are looking to put what we in the security community call security control in place. These are things that, you know, are really features of our application that provide security, like logins or authentication or encryption, things like that, which, you know, in Agile would be stories. It would be specific features or functions that you are going to create. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. So the more difficult um, security requirements are the non-functional requirements, right? How do I inherently make the entire application secure? Um, how do I make it reliable and not susceptible to attack? Uh, those, to me, tend to be um, more, uh, we write them as non-functional security stories, which apply to all your stories and really kind of guide your security testing or your penetration testing um, toward the areas of risk that you've identified in your application. So I teach a security testing class. Purpose of that class is to teach software testers how to better test for security, because I think it's just another bullet you know, that you have, right, that you can use it's something else in your arsenal um, as a tester, and, and I do believe that Security needs to be integrated into the, the entire continuous testing process uh, for it to be effective. Do you, uh, do you uh, one question to that effect, do you currently think kind of security is often like the most overlooked thing when it comes to criteria, like with testers? I think it, well, for, for testers, yes, I do. Um, and mainly because it's that they're, you know, worried that they can't or won't be able to somehow help. And that's one of the goals of this class is, you know, I tell all the students right up front, I don't expect you to know anything about security. That's why you're here. I expect you to know a lot about testing. What I'm going to show you is how you can use that testing knowledge you already have with a little dose of what security is all about to start to become an effective security tester. Uh, and you ought to be able to leave this class and go back and start to do damage. In fact, ironically, even though I tell them not to do that, some of them decide to go home after the first night and see if they can break into their website. <laughs> uh, not a good strategy. We actually, last time I taught this 
you know, taught that class. Two um, people in the class got calls from their IT organization during the class, <laughs> asking them what they were doing. <laughs> and I said, I told y'all, don't do that. But, you know, people are curious and they're testers, right? So they want to break something. But no harm, no foul. They didn't. Nothing came of it other than IT said the same thing I did, which was, okay, that's fine. Tell us next time you're going to do that, please. <laughs> you, know, you gave us all the heart attack. We thought somebody was attacking us. As long as they got out of it with a slap on the wrist, I think that's okay. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to have to make maybe make them sign a waiver or something. I don't know. It's like, gosh, dang, these testers, they want to dig in and start breaking stuff. And this is the wrong kind of stuff to be breaking at night. Because, you know, irrespective of how, you know, well security is integrated into the software process, every organization has it well integrated into the operational process. And so you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be hacking around and doing things malicious, um, very long production in most organizations. Right, right. Uh, you told me that you expect Star West to be particularly well attended at the end of uh, September here, uh, potentially yeah. even a record crowd for a TechWell event. Um, curious, you know, what sorts of conversations you're looking forward to having with attendees and what's particularly interesting on the agenda? Yeah, so um, we hit on a lot of the topics. I mean, I, I went through and looked at the submissions and, and also what was accepted and you know, and for anyone that's interested, usually we take anywhere between 15 and 20 percent of submissions. So it is pretty competitive to get into the star conferences to speak. Um, but, you know, AI is all over the conference, you know, which is, is always interesting to hear different perspectives. The great thing is now, you know, practitioners are starting to show up and, and talk about how they're applying artificial intelligence to testing in their organizations, which is a great next step. You know, for some of these tools and technologies, um, a huge theme is, you know, how do I integrate tests into DevOps and continuous delivery and, and all that fun stuff. And then the third one is, you know, effectively testing, you know, what historically I would, I would call highly distributed systems or distributed systems, you know, really it's IoT, you know. Um, to some extent, microservices, service-oriented architectures, lots of stuff around, you know, effective ways to test those kinds of systems as well. So I think we got a good, good set of speakers and, and talks around all of the cutting-edge topics that are out there, as well as just, you know, great fundamental software testing techniques from design to execution to planning to whatnot. So we're pretty excited about this one. Should be fun. Check out searchsoftwarequality.com for more articles on application development, testing, and management topics. And follow us on Twitter at SoftwareTestTT.